Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patient Talk Podcast, delivered to you by Omni Health Insights. In this episode, recorded in a partnership with Obix, I'll be chatting with Professor Kieran Boyle, who is Director of the Centre for Positive Psychology and Health, which is part of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. He and I will be talking about burnout in healthcare, and we'll be talking about strategies for providing support and encouragement. Now, it almost goes without saying that 2020 has been a difficult year. It's been a challenging year for reasons, including, but not limited to COVID-19. Various studies worldwide have shown that doctors have faced increased anxiety at both work and home. In China, for example, a study more than 1,000 healthcare workers in 34 hospitals from earlier this year revealed a huge number of professionals who reported symptoms of depression, anxiety, insomnia, and distress. So I began by asking Professor Boyle for his perspective on the scale and severity of his problem. Stress and burnout have always been identified as problems in the healthcare professions. And there are a variety of reasons for that. You know, it's a demanding job. COVID has introduced a whole new set of stressors for health professionals and particularly for those who are working at the front line, who are dealing directly with patients who have the virus infection. Just in 2020, there's a literature starting to emerge looking at the prevalence and the incidence of this. There was a literature previously from the MERS and the SARS epidemic, and that has been helpful in directing research in this area. But if you think about it, the additional stress factors for health professionals, one was in many countries, the lack of PPE. Some countries are very slow to get adequate protection equipment for their staff. Lots of health professionals have concerns about getting infected themselves and particularly then carrying that infection home to their families, to family members. And then because of the workload, particularly in EDs, you know, there's basic things like lack of food, lack of rest, poor sleep quality, you know, those very basic sorts of stressors. In fact, in one study in Wuhan, in one of the large hospitals there early on in the epidemic, the hospital management asked health professionals a whole series of questions about stress and what supports they needed. And the answer was, give us some place to sleep and make sure that we're adequately fed with the simple things. But you also have then stressors such as the changing nature of having to cope with death, especially for young, newly trained health professionals. And then there's a concern about what's called moral injury. Moral injury is the damage done to us when we see something or experience something that challenges us ethically, that challenges our values. And in countries with limited resources, very difficult decisions are having to be made. For example, in triage, who to treat, who not to treat, when to, you know, withdraw treatment. And that can be really challenging for health professionals, particularly if they feel that the decisions are not being made in an ethical way or perhaps, you know, they're not being made in a very reflective way. So I think internationally, right across the spectrum, I'd summarize by saying that mental health challenges are ubiquitous. We're seeing reports from many countries, many different cultures, all saying very similar kinds of things about the added impact of COVID and dealing with COVID 
on the mental health and the well-being of health professionals. So no one could see the pandemic coming, obviously. It was an event that took everyone by surprise. It's not the first time that we've had a major disease outbreak in the world. And of course, the world has faced similar challenges and stresses. So why weren't these concerns anticipated sooner? Why wasn't there anything in the system to proactively address these problems? So I think it came on very quickly at huge scale. So I think that was one reason. Henry Ford once said that the only thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history, you know. So you would really have to go back to Spanish flu and the bubonic plague and these huge plagues have something that's comparable to this. I don't think SARS or MERS were anything like comparable to this in scale. I think there's a third issue, and that is to do with the way healthcare systems are structured and the way they operate. Very often, I think you have a culture in healthcare where health professionals give and give and give of themselves, tremendously driven by altruism and by their vocational desire to help. I think that happened here. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. The problem is that's not sustainable. You really have to have supports in place to allow people to continue to operate in situations that are that challenging. Are there healthcare professionals who are dealing with this well or effectively? I think we can broadly divide them into two approaches. One is what can healthcare professionals themselves do? And then there's a second set of questions really around their organizations and the kinds of organizational strategies that need to be put in place to support health professionals. Now, if we come to what health professionals themselves can do, we have some research on this. And there are a number of things that seem to be helpful The first is if you can rely very heavily on your training, if you can fall back and feel that you can rely on your training, that's really helpful in terms of dealing with the day-to-day stresses of dealing with COVID patients. The second is that taking a proactive sort of problem-focused approach seems to work well. So seeing events as challenges to be dealt with rather than catastrophes, you know, that cause you to go under. We call that adopting a growth mindset, very specific kind of psychology around this. People who adopt a growth mindset set out to say, well, if it's difficult and and challenging, what I'll do is I'll do my very best, but I learn from it. So the next time in, I know better how to deal with this. That's a second. The third, people do better if they maintain very good social supports, friends, family, colleagues, if they're open, if they discuss. The team huddle is a fantastic example of that in hospital, you know, where at the end of a difficult shift, the team comes together briefly, has a huddle, and there's a sense of mutual support there. There's recent research evidence to show that health professionals who key into their original calling, their sense of vocation, what brought them into medicine or nursing or physio or pharmacy in the first place, that sort of altruistic calling that they had, keying into that consciously actually seems to be strongly associated with having a strong sense of a meaning. And that in turn seems to be a bulwark against burnout. Then, of course, taking care of one's health, diet, exercise, time out, good sleep, hygiene, and so on. Those are important factors that set the tonal level of coping Now, the problem really is that there's only so much that the individual can do. People are working in many countries in horrendously challenging situations with massive workload, inadequate resources, uh, seeing really awful suffering and death. 
seeing a type of bereavement, which I don't think we've seen before, where family can't be there, where it's incredibly demanding on health professionals watching somebody die, for example, or the family isn't there, knowing the family can't see the person, knowing they can't be with them at the funeral. Health professionals have talked a lot about just how difficult that is. It's hard not to project to one's own family or one's own parents in such situations. So that comes back to the, and then to the question of, well, what should healthcare organizations be doing? I think we should start with the idea that there is a duty of care here. In all stress situations, whether we're talking about healthcare or we're talking about financial services, it doesn't really matter. Organizations have a duty of care for the well-being of the people who work within those organizations. So I think what the more enlightened healthcare centers are doing is that they have policies around, for example, how shifts work trying to put teams together and keep them together in the same team over long periods, body systems for new people starting off into this kind of situation, open communication, supports in terms of restrooms, places where people can take time out from the immediacy of the situation. Some organizations use what are called Schwartz rounds, where it's a a type of an emotional debrief where staff are able to look at a situation that's occurred and talk about their feelings and their emotions in relation to that. So I think there are a set of strategies that can be used at an organizational level. Then I think it behoves leaders in these organizations, whether clinical or otherwise, to be monitoring their staff, to be watching for signs where people might not be doing so well, and also being aware that the stressors that they're dealing with will not just be stressors occurring within the hospital setting or the clinic setting, they will also have additional stressors at home, like managing young children, elderly parents, and so on. And then I think there's a third layer, which is where people really need help, where somebody is really suffering, for example, from post-traumatic stress disorder, or where a level of depression or anxiety is such that it needs intervention. And there really does need to be an employee assistance program or a, a backup of some type there for that much smaller percentage of people who will need that additional care. And then the final thing I would say, it's not all going to be over when it's over, because the problem with the psychological impacts of this situation is that they may continue long after the immediate physical clinical impacts of the virus and the pandemic have uh, abated. And we have research on that in relation to SARS and MERS, for example, where even a few years later, some health professionals are finding it very difficult to cope with what they had experienced. Continue doing business at the COVID-19 virtual edition of Patient Safety Middle East taking place from the 5th to the 7th of November 2020. CME accredited educational sessions, expert insights and countless business connections in the Middle East region and beyond are just some of the things that the event will offer. Find out more at patientsafety-me.com. What does empathy and leadership look like? How can leaders take greater interest in the well-being of their staff? So if we think about compassionate leadership and what that might mean, so perhaps if we split it into two first, so let's talk about empathy and compassion first. There's a lot of really interesting research and new thinking now on compassion, and we're starting to understand how important it is. When I'm feeling empathy for another, I'm feeling their pain. 
I'm feeling their suffering. I have a sense of what they're going through. Now, that's terribly important, particularly in healthcare. The problem with it, Matt, is that if it stops there, I'm kind of left feeling the pain and I feel there's nothing much I can do about it or feeling the other person's suffering. Compassion adds in another dimension. Compassion is action. Where I feel empathy and I understand somebody's suffering and what they're experiencing, compassion means that I actually take action to alleviate that. Now, we know from amazing research on the brains of Buddhist meditators who have been meditating for you know years and years, if we do MRI scans and we look at people practicing empathy and those practicing compassion, love and kindness meditation, for example, very different parts of the brain light up there. So experiencing compassion lights up an area of the brain that's associated with reward. It's the dopaminergic reward systems. That's really interesting because what that means is that there are rewards for compassion for both the receiver of compassion, but also the giver of compassionate care. Very often, I think the challenge is that health workers are find themselves in situations where it's very hard to deliver compassionate care because of inadequate resources, you know, lack of equipment and so on. We know from research that compassion is associated with all kinds of amazing effects. For example, a very early study done in the States where a compassionate meeting with your anesthetist preoperatively decreased the requirement for pain relief by 50% postoperatively. You know, compassion has been shown to have effects on diabetes. It's been shown to have effects on a whole range of very interesting effects of compassionate care. I think the research is robust enough now that we're probably in our medical schools and our nursing schools going to have to start with a lot more emphasis on compassion in healthcare delivery. So that's the compassion bit. Now, when we come to leadership, I think the first challenge is really, well, what do we mean by leadership? Because different people mean different things. I subscribe to the idea that the best kind of leadership is what we call transformational leadership. And it's a particular kind of leadership which sets out to develop and transform the follower into the best that they can possibly be. I think when you talk about KPIs and, you know, systems and operate, that's management. That's much more a management type of image. So I make a distinction between leadership and management there. In the Institute of Leadership in the RCSI, we put thousands of people through training in and development in leadership. And the model we use there is a model called authentic leadership. And authentic leadership involves one's own autobiography. So when you bring your own life history, your own life experience to bear, it involves a moral center. You you operate from an ethical base, and it also involves creating an organization that supports that kind of care for people working within it. So the four components of authentic leadership for those who wish to develop it. The first is knowing yourself. So it's self-reflection, it's self-development. It all starts there. The second is operating from a set of values in which one does the right thing. One knows what one's values are. One has, has identified one's values and articulated them and one operates from one's values. The beauty about that is that that engenders trust. So people who are being led by somebody like this, who operates from their values, know that they can trust this person and they know they can probably predict how they react in a particular situation because they won't be reacting willy-nilly based on what the situation is. They'll be reacting from a set of values and they will strive in all situations to do the right thing, not just the easy thing. 
The third element is being fair-minded. That means being able to take into account a variety of different points of view, variety of agendas, and may come to a balanced decision rather than seeking to have one's own agenda met and one's own needs met. John Adair, the leadership writer, would say you're balancing your own needs, the needs of others and the needs of the situation in coming to a decision. And then the final part of that is being authentic. It's being genuine and being compassionate. Now, who would not want to be led by somebody like that who A, is trustworthy, who knows what their values are, who has worked on themselves, who takes into account you know, a variety of views, who's open to input, who treats people as individuals, who is trustworthy. So there's a lot of research on this, Matt, and it basically shows that transformational leadership is really, really effective. It's the most effective form of leadership in organizations. How widely practiced is it? That's another question entirely, you know, but as we move increasingly into knowledge-based economies, the main asset that the organization will have, the main value will be what's in the heads of their employees. So transformational leadership makes a great deal of sense in those kinds of organizations. Now, the final thing I'd say about that is there's a really, really useful book by Jane Dutton and Monica Worlein, recently published last year on compassion in the workplace. And they've gone to a considerable effort to identify practical ways in which compassionate leadership can operate and how you can create a positive organization. Basically, their model is there's four parts to it. First is being aware and noticing suffering when it's occurring, because often suffering is hidden. People hide their suffering, but there may be signs. Somebody may be looking not so well. They may be getting angry very easily. They may be caught up in busy work. You know, there may be subtle signs. Trying to help the person make meaning of the suffering in a way that contributes to a desire to alleviate it. So kind of those sorts of coaching discussions, I think, really, really valuable in this. Showing a empathy and an empathetic concern and then taking action, because in management, we often have resources that we can bring to bear, you know, that others lower down the chain just don't have access to. It's really a type of leadership that's values driven and a type of leadership that springs from the individual, from the leader's own sense of themselves and their sense of what is right to do, not just what is expedient. This makes a lot of sense. So would you say, therefore, that we need a different type of healthcare leader, someone who is more faithful to their values and authentic? In that vein, how do we identify these leaders? How do we promote them in a workplace? And if we don't do that, then how do we cultivate this behavioral change, if that makes sense, in current leadership? I think healthcare is changing very rapidly. I mean, technology is one of the huge drivers for healthcare. Demographic change is a huge driver for healthcare. I can see a very big shift coming soon where we'll move away from a, an almost exclusively curative approach in healthcare to a preventative approach. We simply, with aging populations, we simply can't keep going with the healthcare system that we have for you know, people develop diseases, get ill, and we try to cure or alleviate at that point. We need far more investment, far more investment in prevention. Lifestyle medicine is one of the, the kind of emergent uh, approaches to this. We ourselves in the, the RCSI have just set up a new center for positive psychology and health, and that's very much the 
the thinking behind that. How do we enable large numbers of people to maintain, to maximize their health and their well-being for as long as possible? And to really try to get to, you know, a kind of what we call a compression of morbidity, where people live very long, healthy lives, perhaps, you know, get seriously and have a short period of morbidity. So I see very big shifts coming. Now, I think we're going to need different kinds of healthcare leaders in those kinds of circumstances. We ourselves have been very involved in developing clinicians, you know, nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and so on in healthcare. And I think that has worked well to a point. In many centers, you have the administrative staff and you've got the clinical staff, and there's usually very often territorial battles between them and demarcations and People rock up with their own worldviews and their own agendas and so on. Now, I think lots of really progressive healthcare organizations have moved away from that sort of model and involved clinicians in the leadership of the organization. Michael West, who has written a lot about compassionate leadership in healthcare, he's based at the King's Fund. And he says there are really three things that health professionals need. One is autonomy and control. The second is they need to belong, feel a sense of belonging. And the third is they need a sense of competence. So I think it is important that we very early on in the development of health professionals right across the spectrum, we start developing their management and leadership skills. I think that should really start at the very early stages of education. That doesn't happen at the moment. I think it's a pity. I think we've got to take a very hard look at exactly how education works in medicine, in nursing, in pharmacy, and so on. I think we seem to me to be educating health professionals for a healthcare system that currently exists, but not for one that will exist in five or 10 or 15 years time. And I don't think we've adapted our educational systems quickly enough to develop health professionals for the future of healthcare. There's a wonderful writer called Otto Scharmer, whom I'm very fond of, based in MIT. One of the things that Otto says that I think is really, really good, he says, one of the biggest mistakes we make is that we try to lead by looking at the past rather than by looking at the future that's emerging. So I think right across the spectrum, Matt, in terms of our healthcare systems, in terms of our education, in terms of continuing education, in terms of the criteria we educate to, I think we need to start increasing the emphasis we're putting on the personal development of health professionals, their capacity for management, their capacity for leadership. And then in addition, I think we need to start changing the way healthcare organizations operate internally in terms of their leadership, their management, their structures. And I also think we need to change the way healthcare operates in society, where we've a much greater emphasis on prevention, on empowerment of people, a broader kind of view of health, which goes back to the World Health Organization definition. So a good starting point for me would be to adopt the WHO original definition of health and start there. What we've got is a very much a biomedical model, which works very well in certain circumstances, but in chronic conditions, for example, or in prevention, it's not really that good there. This is an online event brought to you by the Nurse Leadership Forum Middle East an initiative by OBEX, your perinatal partner in the Middle East. 
The Obex experience starts from the moment an expectant mother attends hospital for the first time. Obex provides complete central bedside and remote electronic fetal monitoring data for clinical workflow enhancement, patient record integrity, and continuity of care. This event is a thank you from the Obex family to all the hospitals and healthcare workers providing life-saving care to patients and supporting the needs of our communities. It seems like there's a need for a, uh, a series of holistic changes. Would you say that there needs to be change at policy level? So if you look at uh, what governments are doing, for instance, to what extent do they need to drive much of this change? Because we can talk about executing change on a lower level, but when we talk about systems themselves and models, presumably there needs to be some intervention right from the top. I think that's a really great question. I've always been fascinated by the emphasis that governments put on GDP as an indicator of how well a country is doing. There was a wonderful speech by Robert Kennedy where he talks about all of the things that GDP doesn't capture in a society. GDP is basically an economic indicator, but I think we've tended to look at it as a sort of a catch-all final outcome indicator of how well a society is doing and as an indicator of how well policies are working. Now, some countries have started to look very closely at this. Bhutan, for example, did away with GDP as an outcome. They've used gross happiness quotient. Jacinda Dern in New Zealand on the last budget has started to look at wellness and happiness as an indicator of how well the country is doing. So I think we need a shift here away from what is exclusively an economic indicator to a more broadly based indicator, which looks at the happiness, the well-being of the population as a whole. Clearly, health is part of that. But it's only one part of it. I'll give you an example. I was in Australia recently before COVID time, last July. I saw some fantastic developments in primary school and high school education there where they're teaching children about their strengths. It's an idea that has emerged from positive psychology where you can identify what your key strengths are. And the evidence is if you're working with your key strengths, your top five strengths, and you're using those every day, your sense of well-being and happiness just goes up and up and up. So what's been happening in Victoria, led by a, a very, very interesting psychologist called Lee Waters, Professor Lee Waters at the University of Melbourne, they've actually taken some of these ideas in terms of positive education and started teaching very young children how to identify their strengths. This has been done, a huge study done in Bhutan, another one done in Mexico, another one done in Peru. And what the evidence shows there is you can intervene with young children, children as young as four or five years of age. Not only do you increase their emotional well-being, you increase their physical well-being, and that translates into better academic performance. Makes sense. Happy kids learn better. But there's an example of an idea that could be applied at national level in our education systems. And one of the outcomes of that would be probably a decrease in the levels of eating disorders, of depression, suicidal ideation, and so on in young people in the teenage years. Now, we haven't cohort studies to demonstrate that yet, but I think we could argue that it's pretty likely. Another example of this would be the blue zones. Dan Butner's uh, research on the zones in parts of the world where people 
regularly lived over 100 years of age. And there are certain characteristics, both of what they do, their behaviors in terms of, you know, what they eat, plant-based diets, you know, they get up from the table when they're 80% full. Their activity is natural. It's built into their day. And you see shepherds in their 80s, for example. So there are things that they as individuals do. But then there are also things that cities can do, that countries can do to create the built environment, which means that it's much easier for people to actually look after their health. So it takes a shift in thinking to a broader, more holistic sort of approach. And I think that's just where we have to go. I mean, we're all extremely worried. We're worried about COVID, but the big beast in the background is climate change just sitting behind that. So if if something positive comes from COVID, I think it will show us that as a species, through all of the heartache and the heartbreak, we are adaptable. We do adapt, we learn. In fact, Darwin said, you know, it wasn't the strongest that survived, it was the most adaptable who survived. And in fact, he went on to say that it was the most sympathetic who survived, which brings us back to compassion. You know, you can see how compassion as a human characteristic in early man created a very strong evolutionary advantage. So I think we've got to a point where we need to think very differently about health and healthcare. Will we need the kind of healthcare we currently have? Sure, we will, but probably more efficiently delivered, far greater use of technology. But that's only one component in a much larger set of components of how we do health going forward. It does sound like a very uh, complex challenge, um, yeah. but nonetheless, uh, an important one going forward. But you know, as you say, Matt, driven by policy. I mean, you know, a lot of these things are driven from the top. And, you know, if, if government policy starts, for example, to put in simple things like cycleways, walkways, access to, you know, spaces for physical activity, we know physical activity is the best medicine there is, you know. So you can see how you start to build then a different kind of environment. They did this in one of the cities in California where they put in a whole set of policy uh, changes and change the built environment and they had really significant impact on healthcare. For me as a psychologist, I think the really interesting thing here is that if you look at the main approaches that are needed here, so it's physical activity, it's diet, it's alcohol, drugs, smoking, it is sleep. Those are all behaviors. They're all behaviors. So We're coming into an era where health psychology was a Cinderella subject for a very long time, just like public health medicine was a Cinderella subject until about a year ago. Now, suddenly, it's the most important subject that we have in the specialty that we have. So I see us coming to a time when this is becoming more important and more accepted. And that's the beauty about, you know, technology and media. You know, it's accessible to people. People can take more power more responsibility for themselves. They can learn, they can get access to information. The troubling side of that, the downside of course, is we have an absolute infodemic at the moment where there's far too much information out there. A lot of it really very dodgy. So we will need access to water and nature and physical exercise is a, um, an important component of a, uh, of a healthy lifestyle. But it seems also that much of it is in conflict perhaps with other ideals, if that's the right word. So you look at the Anglo-Saxon economies who are obsessed with GDP, economic growth, mm-hmm. they've had plenty of opportunity to implement some of these ideas, but not much has changed since. Um, mm. Perhaps there are certain exceptions. So if you look at the Nordic economies like Denmark, 
for instance. There are positive examples, but on a whole, it seems quite challenging. There's some very interesting ideas developed by a guy called Ken Wilbur, philosopher, who who's written a lot about this. He's a, one of his books called A Theory of Everything. And one of the things he says I think is very interesting is new ideas come in complex ways. They come as memes. At the start, maybe just a small percentage of people are thinking like this, and then gradually over time, increasing percentages of people. And the, the meme, it has to get to a certain threshold level within a society for the change to happen. I see things happening out there that I think are bringing us to more quickly to a threshold. And I think COVID is an accelerator of that, because if one thing COVID has taught us is that we are personally responsible for our own health in this situation. Our own approach to risk is important. The strategies for preventing the spread are all behaviors. And we are learning and we are adapting and we're starting to understand that, you know, yes, it's challenging, but there are things that we can do as individuals which A, demonstrate solidarity, B, demonstrate a concern for the common good, and C, demonstrate to us that our own behaviours have significant consequences for our health. So I'm hoping that's one of the lessons that will come from this awful pandemic. That being said, I didn't really see much compassion recently when toilet rolls were uh, <laughs> by, by shoppers in, in various supermarkets around the world. As much as there has been evidence of compassion and, and people reaching out to one another, I've seen a lot of competitiveness, if that's the right word, and yeah. self-interest. I think what's really interesting about this is the need for intergenerational solidarity, you know. In Ireland at the moment, we've a problem with young people partying, you know, and you're seeing that in the UK, for example, and other countries as well. But that's probably only a small minority of young people. In general, throughout the last year, I think young people have showed extraordinary solidarity because they themselves are at relatively little risk of having a serious sequelae to an infection, whereas their elders are at huge risk. And I don't think that's been framed that much in terms of intergenerational solidarity. Unfortunately, young people are losing out yet again. They lost out in the last recession. They're going to lose out in relation to this. And yet we're seeing them changing their behavior, being careful by and large, I think. The stats would support that in solidarity with older people. So, yeah, it's always going to be balanced, but there's a centre in Stanford for compassion uh, in education set up by a neurosurgeon, actually, a guy called James Doughty. And he thinks we're kind of coming into a time when compassion will be important. There's also Karen Armstrong, the great religious scholar. She set up a charter for compassion. There's a whole website and a whole background to that. And I think that's something that, again, is gathering momentum. I think we're seeing in some countries the rise of totalitarian types of regimes. I think sometimes what you see there is equal and opposite reactions. Perhaps what will happen is that that will trigger a reaction which goes in the other direction. We shall see. <laughs> this has been a very interesting conversation. You have an upcoming talk on the 12th of October in which you will be talking about compassionate care and leadership yeah. and various strategies corresponding to that. Can you tell us a little bit more about this session? We're going to look really at two things. The first is to provide what I hope is helpful advice for health professionals for themselves for dealing with their own psychological well-being in this COVID time, particularly in leadership roles. So that'll be the first part of it. The second part of it is I want to talk about leadership and how we think about leadership because 
I sometimes think people are put off leadership because they think there's one way of leading, you know, that they have to be charismatic and they have to be a particular type and so on. Whereas we know that there are as many ways of leading as there are types of people. One of the things we learned in the Institute of Leadership over the years was it's a wonderful to see the light go on in people's heads when they realized, yeah, I could actually lead while still being the person I am. I don't need to be this charismatic front of the house person. There's a way of leading quietly. In fact, some of the best leaders lead quietly. They're effective, you know, they're approachable. So one of the things I'd like to come out of this session is that people would maybe reflect on their own leadership style, see what's good about it, see what might need to be developed in that, and then perhaps come away with a, a model for compassionate leadership, which allows them maybe to tweak how they themselves lead, but also more importantly, to develop their own people into leadership roles and help their own people develop into leadership. The mark of a true leader is somebody who develops leaders. You know, that's in my view. Thanks once again to Professor Kieran O'Boyle, Director of the Centre for Positive Psychology and Health. So to summarise, relying on training is helpful for dealing with day-to-day stresses. Taking a more proactive approach or adopting a growth mindset works well, as does maintaining good mutual support through friends, family and colleagues, for example. But organisations themselves also have a duty of care, from open communication to restrooms, Leaders should look out for signs and monitor staff well-being. And still on a leadership theme, healthcare professionals should develop management and leadership skills right from the beginning. Meanwhile, the way healthcare organisations operate should change internally, but also in society. Professor Boyer will be joining Assistant Professor Jane Griffiths from a Dubai Health Authority and others on the 12th October for a virtual session of compassion, clinical effectiveness and burnout for nurse leadership. Speakers will share examples of tactics deployed and overarching strategies used to provide help and encouragement. This initiative comes from OBIX Middle East, part of Clinical Computer Systems Incorporated.